that's why it becomes such heavy work. And that's why these kinds of redesigns do require full buy-in from, you know, your company and your leaders, because while it was the passenger team that was redesigning this and owning this work, it's going to be the driver team and the growth team and the enterprise team that are going to help to really bring this thing to light across all other areas of the product. Today's episode is brought to you by Wix.com. Push the limits of design and start creating beautiful, impactful websites that are uniquely yours with Wix. And we'll be talking more about Wix later on in this episode. All right, welcome to Overtime, Katie Dill. Thanks so much. Good to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure having you here. And I'm excited to talk about all the stuff. I've got a crazy bullet list of things here. I got to actually, it's funny, I'm going to start off with your latest Instagram post because I thought that. Oh, right. now I'm like, what did I post? Uh oh. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, right. No, no, no. Don't worry. It's a really good one. It's actually an amazing <laughs> photo of a redwood tree. Ah. Uh, and it, with a quote, a John Steinbeck quote that I hadn't had not heard before about how it's like impossible to paint a redwood. And and uh anyway, I just wanted to mention this because I live in New England, but I visited redwoods and they are incredible. But I just wondered what the the story behind that. Yeah. Well, you know, very lucky to live in Northern California, or I guess it's sort of in the middle, but uh, San Francisco and then, you know, redwood trees are actually, I can go about 200 yards from my house and, and be sitting next to redwoods. I live in the Presidio in San Francisco. And then of course, you know, love getting away to Tahoe and, you know, we're near woods. There's just all these fantastic places, North, South, East and West. And I, um, I'm just particularly taken by the redwoods. There's just something so strangely and uniquely peaceful about them. Just like they're, they knock you speechless when you first look at them because they're just, they sit so quietly. Um, But, you know, they have a commanding presence for sure. And, you know, the more you learn about them, the more interesting they are. Just, you know, the way that, you know, in some ways they repel fire uh, and, you know, they can live through, you know, things that are, have taken California by storm numerous times, as we all know, including right now. And they, you know, have become, you know, kind of like an anchor for a lot of California lives. Uh, yeah, they're pretty special. Yeah, it's so cool. They and they are they're they're giant. You're in the Bay Area and uh, you're currently uh, VP of design at Lyft. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Been there for about a year now. Awesome. Yeah. And we're going to get into some, some things uh, regarding Lyft and the, the new passenger app and design and stuff. But I wonder how, like starting at the beginning, maybe like how you got into design because before Lyft, you were, I believe at Airbnb, right? That's right. Yeah. I was at Airbnb for about four years and then came over to Lyft uh, sometime around last October. Yeah. How did you get to design? I think your path was interesting and I wonder if you could share it. Yeah. Well, you know, I am a part of the generation of designers that often grew up without design as, you know, a common profession. Uh, I went to college in upstate New York at a liberal arts school called Colgate University. I studied history because I just wanted to know why things are the way they are. Mm. And I had never even heard of design other than interior design or fashion design. It just hadn't occurred to me that that was a profession. 
And I had graduated college, you know, of course, as a history major, there's not a ton of different jobs <laughs> available yeah. to you. But I also, uh, you know, knew I didn't want to be a historian. I, I knew that there were, there were more things ahead of me that I had yet to explore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I actually thought, you know, I wanted to be an architect. Uh, while I was studying abroad in Florence when I was in college, I, I just fell in love with architecture and thought that might be what I would pursue. But when I was exploring that avenue while living in Boston, I started to realize by talking to a lot of different architects that it was probably not the right job for me. You know, there were so many wonderful things about it, but one of the things that was kind of consistent with every single person I talked to is their frustrations with you know, just how long things take. And frankly, you know, between you, me, and everybody that's listening, um, I'm, I'm a pretty impatient person. So you know, it became clear that that was probably not the route for me. And at the same exact time, I was very fortunate that a roommate of mine had seen the IDEO making the shopping cart a uh, 60 minute special. Oh wow! Yeah, and it you know a lot of folks you know that I've heard in the design industry, you know, that was their their first learning of product design, and and I'm one of them, and that you know kind of was just eye opening it's like wow there's this job that people have that you know it seems to be exactly what you know I love to do i just never knew it was a job then started to talk to product designers try to figure out well how do i go and do that and of course all of them said well lovely that you have a history degree but you're going to need a lot more than that so recommended i go back to school and so i went to art center college of design in pasadena california and got a second bachelor's. Uh, and so I studied industrial design and never looked back. Best choice I've ever made, including moving over to the West Coast. It's a lovely place. Wow. So, and that's interesting because I would think that there are a lot of um, similarities between architecture, for instance, and uh, and product design for, for the web and stuff. Would I be accurate there? Or? Yeah. I, I mean, well, I never really truly pursued architecture, so I guess I can't speak to... Um, thoughtfully about it. But I would say that there are definitely in all functions of design, there are a lot of similarities. You know, it's in, in many ways, design is, it's a, you know, a process for bringing intention to decisions. And I, you know, whether if, you, you know, an architect might be looking at something at the scale of a building and an industrial designer might be looking at something, the scale of a, you know, a blender or a transportation designer, or a, a car, and a digital designer, a website, but any one of these things, although they're extremely different, um, of course there there's a, a step to that process. And you know, you work at different levels of fidelity as you get further in, and you prototype and you iterate. And you know, any one of those you know, will adopt a lot of the same you know methods. And actually, I find that you know, when we hire onto the design team, for example, you know, we have folks who have formerly been architects or formerly been historians or formerly have been anthropologists and they, they bring really unique things to the process, but they also have, you know, a lot of commonality in the way they approach things that, you know, help them get into this type of work more easily. Yeah. That, oh, that's interesting. I like what you said about uh, design being an intention, right? Um, yeah. And, and I think that it's funny. There's the, the ongoing debate about design versus art and, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> is art design and is vice versa or whatever. And let me get your take on that. Would you consider art design or vice versa? Hmm, yeah. Um, I think design is an art, but I wouldn't say all art is design. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, with, 
with design, I, and, you know, to the point of, as I mentioned earlier, intention, like to me, that that's really what design is, is it's bringing intention to something. Uh, and I, I wouldn't say that all design is good. I mean, sometimes your attention is, is wrong. Sometimes your intention is not based on, you know, true insight or, you know, you, you make assumptions that are, are inaccurate or you have bad taste. Uh, but the, you know, intention is to like, well, you know, I want this can to be easy to hold. I want this website to be something that, you know, helps people move through it. And then, you know, the, the design work is the, the series of decisions that you have to make in order to, the, to fulfill that intention. Uh, and I don't think that means that, you know, designers own that explicitly. I think designers are trained to do that well, uh, either, you know, through apprenticeship or through schooling, but it doesn't mean that, you know, we're the only ones who can bring intention to these ideas. And I think artists have an intention to themselves as well. Uh, I think a lot of times, you know, the intention might be to to invoke a, a feeling and express an emotion. Um, whereas, you know, for like product design, for example, usually our intention is to solve a problem. And so that's where they end up deferring. Um, but I don't, wouldn't say that there isn't an art to what we do. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I agree totally. I think there is art in, in design and, yeah, I don't know why we're arguing about that as much. <laughs> <laughs> so you're currently you're you're at Lyft, the VP of design there, which is super cool. I mean, and I know you you guys have just launched a redesign of the the passenger app. I wonder if you could share, you know, a little bit about that, the process and kind of how how you're involved and how the team maybe how the team is structured there at Lyft. I guess that's pretty huge project, right? That's kind of like the center of the company, right? Yeah, there there is definitely a lot that goes into it. It is a big undertaking. And having now been a part of a, a few kind of like product redos, um, I can also speak to the fact that like, you know, these things are never done lightly. It is a big effort. It's a company wide effort. And um it's um it's an exciting piece of work, but it's you know, it's no no easy task for sure. And what I mean by the two is that when I joined Airbnb, um, we were just uh, in the midst of our rebrand. And so I joined the company and they had already had the new logo and the new typography system and color system, but it hadn't yet been applied to the product. And so I joined while we were essentially redoing every single pixel across every digital property and, and every physical thing as well. And then, of course, with Lyft, I joined, and similarly, they were actually in the middle of this uh, passenger app redo. And with the the passenger app redo at Lyft, it was also when we were introducing a design system for the first time. Before that, Lyft, like other companies, you know, it's like, okay, there's a style guide. Hey, you know, use this button, not that button. But we didn't have a sophisticated design system. And so we were taking this opportunity to launch it. And I do recommend to folks, you know, that are looking at bringing out a design system in their company, it, it is very helpful to pair it with a redesign. Otherwise, it's really hard to get that you know, actually brought out in, into real life. You know, you can create a bunch of components, but it's like, well, when is anybody going to, you know, update the product to bring it to that? So you do like to tie these two bodies of work together. But I would also say by tying them together, it gets pretty complicated. It's funny. Um, 
applying a system retroactively it would seem like it'd be really hard and and maybe not as fun either right like i'm i'm thinking of dribble for instance where we we didn't have a a system because it was just me initially um i guess it was in my head but uh, now it's a bigger team and um i could see yeah like it makes more sense to couple that with like an overhaul of the of the ui for instance rather than going back and trying to document a system that that might be there sort of you know right is that yeah uh, yeah well I, i'll tell it in a story of a i mean a hypothetical scenario one that i hadn't experienced but imagine you just wanted to do a design system and then nobody else wanted to redo anything about the app or your, your website. And you're just like, let's, let's now componentize. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, you get some people in a room and they try to come up with this design system, but it's, you know, they're basically looking at everything that exists today and trying to componentize it. So you're not really able to make an improvement on what is today. And then if they try to make an improvement of what it is today and, and change things potentially, then of course, you know, you, you, that requires quite a bit of work in order to identify, well, what is this new thing going to be? And if it's disassociated from any actual work, you're basically making a design system in a vacuum and design systems done, you know, outside of the actual work are oftentimes pure fiction until they, you actually do apply them into the product. So for example, you might come up with like, okay, we're going to have these row items and this is going to be what it looks like when you can have, you know, a button next to an icon. And this is what it's going to look like when you have detailed information. And then, you know, you just do that completely in a silo. And then by the time you try to bring it to the product, it's like, well, actually like we never need those instances or when we do, it needs to do these two other things as well. So it's really helpful to be responsible for the product as well at that time or that, that area of the product, the features, because once you have the understanding of what are the goals of the features, you're going to do a much better job in uh, actually articulating components that really work to achieve those goals. Hmm. So I, you know, I hear you as like separating them. It's like, you know, sometimes it's less complicated, but it's, you know, you're just end up, you know, taking yourself more time anyway, because you've got to find that information eventually. In ter in regards to the the Lyft app specifically, um, did you find that as these things were happening together, were were they happening like was it a back and forth type thing, or does it come up with a design for a certain part of the app and then and then go back and make components out of that? Or I'm wondering how the how the process worked there. Yeah, yeah. So what the team was doing was essentially so we're looking at the passenger app and it's all right, like, let's take a, a bit blank slate approach. Like, how could we do this differently? And literally we're looking at like anything, right? So what if you, you know, completely change the flow? You ask, instead of this question, and then that one, you switch them and you, you don't even ask that one. Or you, you know, first offer them, you know, five options and then they can whittle it down. You know, we tried everything, flip it all around. And, you know, with uh, the Lyft service, and in fact, that that is what the new app does is it changes quite a bit. The Lyft service, the app used to ask you first, where are you? And then it would offer you different ride types and then ask you where you're going. And that's good because, well, the one thing you, you usually know really well or, you know, have an understanding of is like, you know, this is where I'm standing. But the problem with that is that if we ask you that first, the ride types that we offer you, you know, do you want a bike, a scooter, a train, um, a car, a shared ride, they might not be the right ones for where you're actually going because you might be going really far, you might be going really close. And so we found that that actually was making it take longer for the person to get the information they need. 
and meant that we weren't, you know, making this easy on them. And so we did reverse that in our new design. And so now we ask you first, where are you going? Because we can pretty much assume where you are. Most of the time we know that because of the GPS location. And so we can save you that trouble. And so if you tell us where you're going, we can immediately give you your ride options that are appropriate for where you're likely standing and where you want to go. Uh, we do confirm where you are because sometimes you might want to get picked up on the other side of the street corner, whatever it is, of course. But that switch was, you know, it's a big undertaking. It's, you know, causes a lot of rework, but it was absolutely a win for the passengers uh, and just an improved experience. And while we're thinking of all that and we're rebuilding and architecting, we were also thinking of the componentry and the styling and, you know, how much, like what typography and the white space and how are we going to get, uh, surface this information and how are we going to stylize these choices? And then the real, you know, the brain teaser, of course, is, and then imagine what's going to happen with this choice of style or, you know, this row item or this button and how is it going to actually work across all other aspects of the product, not just the one that we're actually setting out to redesign at that moment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's where, you know, that's why it becomes such heavy work. And that's why these kinds of redesigns do require full buy-in from, you know, your company and your leaders, because while it was the passenger team that was redesigning this and owning this work, it's going to be the driver team and the growth team and the enterprise team that are going to help to really bring this thing to light across all other areas of the product. Because now we've got new button styles, new row styles, new components to use elsewhere. Uh, hopefully with the introduction of the design system, it makes them it easier for folks to build in the future, but it's you know going to take some time to first bring that system to light across all aspects. That's awesome to hear. Um, did Lyft take advantage of user testing or um, you know any surveys based on? I imagine there's a lot of data. There's an enormous amount of data you have available, right, to to go on. And I wonder how if how that played a, a role. Uh, yes, research and data are integral parts of the process at all stages. So you know, for example, when we're first setting out, like what are what are the problems with the current product? What do people want to do that we're not helping them do? And then as we're going through our design iterations, you know, bringing in people to take a look at things, going out into the field, going to different cities to get a different perspective, you know, showing them prototypes or, you know, kind of giving their reaction to things that we've tried. We, we definitely get creative with how we integrate research because, you know, we were you know, we're a growing team, but, you know, back, you know, a year ago, we were almost half the size we are now. And so it was challenging to, you know, get the coverage we need to get, you know, a perspective from people in all different walks of life. So we, we use a lot of digital tools to be able to survey and, and learn from people and get the product in front of them, no matter where they are. And, you know, that becomes invaluable because a lot of our assumptions, like we had some really cool ideas that we thought like, this is awesome. This is going to be so great. It's so fast. You can just you know, do this out of the corner of your eye. And then you know, what we learn is just like, actually, like it's not that clear for people. And, you know, our product is something that is a, a habit forming product. You use it a lot, but we also, you know, we're onboarding 
so many new people every day as, you know, people become more and more interested in ride sharing. You know, we have new people starting on our product every day. And so it's not okay for us to make it, you know, well, it's a feature that's discoverable, right? It's, it actually has to be really intuitive from, you know, somebody who uses our product two times, three times a day to somebody who's never seen it before. And so research helps us get out of our own way in that regard. This week's episode is brought to you by Wix.com. With Wix, the web is your playground. Start with a blank slate and design your website in any layout you want. Work with advanced features like retina-ready image galleries, custom font sets, and sophisticated design effects. Each feature is intuitive to use, so you're in control from design to live. With Wix, you'll have real creative freedom to tell your story online, exactly the way you've envisioned it. Push the limits of design and start creating beautiful, impactful websites that are uniquely yours. Go to Wix.com slash dribble to get started today. That's W-I-X.com slash dribble. Wix, what will you create? I miss the the pink mustache. <laughs> <laughs> was that <laughs> was that there when you came on board? I can't remember uh I was just fascinated by it the first time I saw it, you know, on a car in San Francisco, for instance. Yeah, um, I know. I love the pink mustache as well. And please don't ask about this. But. <laughs> <laughs> I um, no, I think I think we all love the pink mustache. It's it's like a part of our heritage. It's a definitely captures you know something about the the personality for sure. Uh, you know, I think you, you know we don't look back though, and, and you know I, I don't think we're um, you know, seeing a need for it now, I think the the pink mustache in many ways was a a really powerful symbol of you know this is a a friendly service. This is a um, a service that you know kind of piques your interest and tells a story. There's individuality and uniqueness and and fun here. But I think what wasn't told by that mustache was also this is a sophisticated service. This is highly intelligent, it's trusted, and we we know that that you know wasn't coming through with that symbol, and that's where you know our updates to our styling and our marketing and our design system was just so powerful. Is that you know we're a large and serious company now, and you know we want our language to uh, explain that as well, because people trust us and we want to make sure that they can see the information they need and, you know, can see that this app and this service and this online offline experience that they have is one that's really well thought through and, you know, the details are all thought of. Yeah, that makes good sense. It's like one of those things that seem to work really well for recognition too early on as a you know, what, just a curiosity thing too. Like, what is that? What is the big mustache on a car? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah and, that, and now it's like, you know, lift is so large and, and well used that it's probably not, and not necessary either, but. Right. Yeah. Like you can think about these, like marketing, you know, as it's, you're, you're striking up a conversation and the, the pink mustache was like, Hey, we're here. And you're like, Oh, who's this? And, you know, the next is like, all right, well, we've, we've now that we've got your attention, we want to keep it. And you know, the next part is like, you're curious about, well, what are you going to do for me? And, you know, can I trust you to get me to work on time? 
And that's that's the, our language now is making sure that that part is clear. I wonder too. You, you wrote a um, really interesting article um, about uh, recognition within teams and like how to show recognition for folks on your team that are that are doing a great job. And um, I thought it was really interesting. And I, I wonder if if this was uh, something that you're you know you're actively doing there at, at Lyft too. Um, and if you could talk a little bit about you know what you expressed expressed in the article something you came up with that's based on the five love languages, right? Which is that's a, right. Yeah. Yeah. Which I thought was really, was really cool. Uh, and yeah, anyway, I'll, I'll let you, uh, let you explain, but yeah. Yeah. Well, the five love languages, a great book that I, I highly recommend it to anyone, uh, not just folks and couples. It's, uh, you know, it talks about basically, you know, we, you know, live alongside each other and sometimes, you know, one might feel like, you know, Oh, my, my partner, you know, doesn't, you know, give me what I'm looking for as much. They're not, you know, expressing love to me. And what this book is talking about is just like, well, you know, you might have a different language for what you consider expressing love and what they in versus what they do. And so basically you're just talking past each other. And I started to realize that that is what also happens in the workplace. You know, you might consider yourself a fantastic manager and you go out of your way to make sure that people know, you know, when you appreciate them and the, the great work that they're, you're, they're doing. And, you know, you're tapping yourself on the back thinking that you know, I've done a great job here. And then at the same time, you, you might hear from the same person and see that they feel like they're never recognized. And it's that moment where you realize like, well, they're perhaps seeking something else. You know, you might have thought just giving them a pay raise was enough, but they actually might find that hearing encouraging words from you matters way more than their salary or that, you know, just the autonomy to take on a project on their own without, you know, so much leadership oversight is what they've been craving and not, you know, tangible uh, salary benefits. So you you really do got to just kind of dig into that a little bit because basically, you know, we're all different and we all speak a slightly different language. Uh, and it's, it's totally fine that we do, but if we understand, you know, what the other person's preferences are, we can better, you know, kind of cater our conversations so that they can resonate more. And in the article, uh, what I'm kind of laying out is I, I compare it to the five languages and I, I offer a recommendation of what these five languages are in the workplace, things like encouraging rewards, further autonomy, visible impact, et cetera, and explain what each of those things are and how you might see that want in, in the people on your team. And then I also do try to make the point though, that, you know, people want all of these things, uh, probably, uh, but in different amounts. And I think the real, the, the key is trying to understand, you know, what are the things that are the, the primary drivers and motivations for folks? And that will help you understand how to really drive home your messaging when you're trying to provide recognition, appreciation, and encouragement to your team, which I think, you know, hopefully all managers know is a really important part of getting a team you know, excited and driving towards the right things and frankly, just fulfillment in their job. You know, we all want to know we're doing the right thing. So we need to hear that from our, our peers and our, and our managers. Do, do you basically look at the people in your team and say, or, or do you come out and ask them actually, like, what, <laughs> how do you like recognition or how, how do you go about finding, like finding out 
which one or which ones they they appreciate more you know? yeah i think it's totally fine to have a real frank conversation about it that's like hey you know, even I, I have folks that have told me like oh i've shared this article with my direct reports and then we had a follow-up conversation after they got to read it you know they're just it, i don't think there's anything wrong with admitting to your direct report hey i want to do right by you and i really want to understand how you want to work together uh and so i think saying that helps but i will admit i think it's a hard question to answer Somebody says like, how do you like to be recognized, right? Like, you know, you'll probably be like, oh, early and often, you know, <laughs> that's what everybody says. Um, I think it, it does help. And this is kind of like, just like what we, you would say in user research is like, you know, don't ask them what you want the product to be, you know, ask them about, you know, a, a story, have them tell their experience, tell, you know, what they, you know, have, have seen in the past and how that made them feel. So I would often ask, you know, Tell me a time when you felt recognized for your work. And they might choose a story where, you know, you can pull out from that story that right. like what they're talking about here is like public recognition. They really liked, you know, to have their name in lights and, you know, people to get up and applaud about them. And like, that's useful information. Or they might talk about like, oh, you know, I got my dream project because I did well on that other thing. And like, oh, okay. So you like, you know, visible impact and further autonomy. All right. You know, so it, it comes out better through a story, but I do I still, I don't think there's anything wrong with also just being very blunt that this is something you want to understand. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. No, that's great advice actually trying to, try, instead of just coming right out and asking, cause I think, yeah, it, it could work, but I could see it getting a little weird depending on the, the person. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> right. Like people don't usually want to admit like money is what matters to me, you know? Right. Like if that was the top one and, and you did, you felt uncomfortable saying it. Right. Um, and in fact, it, it's funny cause I was reading the article and I, it reminded me of a scene in uh, Mad Men, <laughs> which I, I don't know. Have you, have you watched Mad Men? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, Don, Don and, um, Peggy, right. Is it Peggy? Mm, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Don and, Peggy, you're having this heated argument in his office as usual, but, um, and she's feeling like not recognized cause he's kind of a jerk as a, mm -hmm. as a boss anyway. And he's a jerk, but at the same time, she doesn't know it. I think that he appreciates her and respects her and she's basically asks him outright. And he's like, well, that's what the money's for, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know the, the, basically like that he's paying her a certain amount and he thinks that that's, you know, that's enough of a, of a recognition, I guess. And mm -hmm. obviously mm -hmm. that, you said it right from the start. Obviously that's not always the, not always the case. Yeah. Not for everyone. Yeah. I, I definitely, I had a few instances just with you know, the different types of folks that I have had the pleasure of managing over the last years. It's, I think I've probably managed, you know, well, geez, I don't know, maybe like 75 different people and, every one of them's got, you know, something slightly different about what they are looking for and how they like to work together. And, you know, they're one of them that, you know, kind of got me the most was I, they told me that they weren't interested in career progression. They weren't interested in different titling. They weren't interested in making more money. They weren't interested in more, uh, any kind of, uh, autonomy or responsibility, and you know this this happened relatively early on in my management career, and I was definitely thrown for, for a loop because it's like, well, what then? You know, how do you get them excited and motivated for their work? 
you know, what, what drives them. And so it was, you know, a, a conversation or, or many conversations that it took to, to learn that and find what really drove them. And then as a manager, you, you know, once you know that you can help to, you know, bring that out in their work and help them find that because, you know, it's, you, know, you ask a lot of people, you know, ask a lot from people and, you know, every one of us has, is driven by something and it can be, tough within your work to sometimes see that firsthand. And if you have your manager also helping you look out for those things and find areas to achieve your goals, then you have a much better shot of, of getting there. So I guess I also would recommend, you know, even if your manager doesn't read this article and isn't thinking this way, it shouldn't stop you from just going up to them and telling them like, Hey, you know, I, I don't really care about this, this, and this, but I really do care about these things. Huh. Help me, help me find that. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I really do. Um, so to switch gears com- completely, I guess a little bit in um, at Airbnb, and, and you talked a little bit about this and about story using stories and storyboarding for you know design like user experience design, and I I thought that was really interesting. Um, and I wonder if we could touch on that a little bit as well. And I wonder if you continue to use that with your work at Lyft, for instance. Yeah. I think storyboards are a really, really powerful tool. And I, I'd say I've been using storyboards as a part of the design process you know, since I learned design at, at Art Center. Uh, we, at Frog Design, where I was for five years, it was probably a, you know, a key part of 90% of the programs that we worked on because it's illuminating for people and organizations to understand what it is that they're creating for people. And I know most folks, you know, when, you know, are busy in their businesses, you know, sit down to try to understand it, you know, the best they do is bulleted lists or boxes and arrows. And unfortunately that doesn't really tell the story of what is a user going through. Storyboards, it's just, you know, it helps you understand the, uh, the emotional journey and, you know, the context of what people are going through when they experience your product. Like, you know, are they carrying shopping bags while they're moving around and they're also trying to use their phone all at the same time while you're trying to send them something? You know, what, what are they going through? Because if you do know that, you'll have a much better shot of really understanding how are you helping them? How are you getting in the way? Where are their opportunities? And so, yeah, we use that at, um, at Frog, we use that at Airbnb and at Lyft now as well. Uh, in fact, just last week, we launched a new storyboard that you know, sh- shows the journey of what we want our passengers and drivers to be experiencing uh, in the two-year future. And that's a, you know, a really powerful tool to align all of the different teams that are going to work on things that are going to help to make that happen see this is where we're going and when they see that that there's a much better shot of people actually you know coming out with things that are aligned to it as opposed to everybody off in their own direction going in their own way uh, so you know we we do have quite a few teams working at the same time and you know the more you can do to align efforts so it's not you know pent up in communication uh, the better yeah no definitely it, it seems like it that coupled with you know, reuse research and data. It takes even more of the guesswork out of out of some of this, right? Yeah, absolutely. You you, you mentioned uh, user stories. Where you do use user stories at, at, at Lyft as well, and did those come into play? I imagine they did with with the passenger app redesign, for instance. 
Yes, the passenger app redesign, we did use story to understand, you know, how does somebody use this? What's the flow? What are the use cases? You know, like, oh, they're running late to work. Oh, they want to go to the grocery store. Oh, they're out with friends. Um, and, you know, there are you know, so many different ways a person would experience our product, right? Like the same person could have a, a business meeting or, you know, a big going out with five people and their needs are very different both those times. And so if we can better put ourselves in those shoes or better understand the different experiences that people have, then we have a better shot of designing a product that's actually going to meet all those unique needs. Right. Oh, totally. And this, this is probably going to get more complex as time goes on. Like you, you mentioned two years and I'm thinking in two years, things could look different with scooters and all different types of transportation, right? That I'm sure Lyft is, is getting involved in. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, we have so many exciting things going on, you know, between autonomous cars, bikes, scooters, transit integration, you know, our vision is we want to you know, change transportation for the better and so that we can actually improve people's lives and improve the cities that we live in. You know, if we can help you move around more seamlessly with a actually like sustainable transportation system, you know, we actually kind of unlock the city. We can get these cars that are parked all over the place, like, you know, taking up room, just sitting parked 96% of the time. We can get them off the road and only have vehicles where you need them, when you need them, then, you know, we can really change the way we live for, for much better. But that does mean that you know, we have to make the product better than the status quo because the status quo is the hardest thing to change, right? Is that like, well, I have my car, I, I'm used to getting into my car and going to work and blah, blah, blah. You know, if we can make that, you know, just as you know, enjoyable, if not more enjoyable, more reliable, more accessible, then, you know, you don't mind selling that car or not buying that car and instead utilizing a system that's far more efficient. Um, so that's, that's the exciting part, but it definitely does mean that, you know, we have our work cut out for us to just make that so, so simple and so enjoyable. Yeah. It's a giant problem you're solving there. Self-driving bikes. Will we see those? self-driving bikes. <laughs> um, I, you know, who knows what the future holds, but I do think, you know, bike riding bikes, riding scooters is a whole lot of fun. You know, the electric aspect, definitely it makes you feel superhuman. You can get to work and, you know, you don't even break a sweat and it's just like, so easy to get around. Um, so we're really thrilled about, you know, our ability to bring bikes and scooters to folks and make that easier. Um, you know, it's, there's a lot we can do in the transportation space to kind of like make better use of the environment. You know, for example, public transportation as well. You know, we are, you know, huge proponents of uh, buses and ferries and trains. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes it's just, it's hard to know like what's the right option for me. Maybe I'm new to this city. I don't know how this bus system works. Um, or, you know, is that really quick? Where, where does it get me you know, to? And if we bring that into the app, you can see all that in one easy place and then you can make your decision as to like, okay, that this route is the, the cheapest and the easiest and the quickest. So, you know, this, this is what I can do. And that way we can better direct traffic to the, the right mode of transportation and uh, get less cars on the road. Yeah. Which is all, which is great. 
goal. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a meaningful one for sure. For, for all of us, right? Mm-hmm. What do you What do you like the most about managing designers? And then I would also ask, like, what do you like the least about it? <laughs> <laughs> Tough question. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I I realized this pretty early on in my design career while I was at Frog. Sorry, dog again. <laughs> uh, well, while I was at Frog, I um, was a, a designer and working on projects with you know small teams, looking at both industrial design and digital design and research all at once. While I was working at Frog, it started to become clear to me how much I just really enjoy the people side of the work and and how we work as you know a, as an organism, and I just kind of found myself just being drawn to, you know, how do I help other people, you know, be even more effective and, you know, I get more joy out of accomplishing that and, you know, essentially unlocking potential in other people than I do in even seeing, you know, something come from my own two hands and you, you know, can have that much more impact that way, right? Is that like, if I can help five people have great impact, like, wow, that's way better than just my, my one thing I could make. And so that, you know, for me has been always like the anchor into the thing that I am most motivated by is that I would love to have a positive impact on the people around me and help them, you know, do better at their job and help them be more filled through their work. And if I do that, I know that, will have that much more impact in this world and can do that many more great things. Uh, that's what I love. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> it's a good thing. Yes. Yeah. It's a very non-selfish like uh, way to look at it too. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope so. And when I guess the other thing, what I don't love, it's not necessarily an issue with management. Um, it's just, it's maybe my, concern for the human race (laughs) um just to go there why not um but you know i i I do think the root of a lot a lot of challenges you know political um you know people engaging well on a team people collaborating well a lot of the issues are coming from our inability to understand another person's perspective and you know we it's totally natural, but it's really hard to step outside your shoes and see what somebody else might be experiencing as their reality and their truth and their knowledge of the situation. And it happens, of course, in everyday life, in every scenario, but also in the workplace where it's like, oh, you know, us versus them, like, you know, a PM thinking that, you know, designers all just do things differently or designers thinking that like, oh, the PMs just don't get it. Or, you know, you, you're you on a team and you work with another designer and this designer doesn't get it versus me. And it's oftentimes that they just have a different understanding of reality. They have different goals. They have different motivations, but it's not that they're wrong. And I do think that's just a hard thing because one, I struggle with that too, just like every other human. But you see that happen oftentimes in your team and a lot of energy needs to go into teasing out you know, some conflicts that are often just based on a lack of empathy and understanding for the other person. And if we could all just have a little bit more of that, I do think we would work a lot better together. We would be a lot more um, you know, gracious and a lot more um, you know, effective in our debates and our collaboration. 
So, you know, I just you know have lost countless hours to this and I think we all have. And that's where I just would, you know, say that there's maybe room for improvement. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I agree totally. And uh, that's probably good advice for the whole world in general right now. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's why I listen to the same amount of CNN and Fox News every single day. <laughs> yeah. Well, right, right. Well, uh, try to try to get both uh, both perspectives or exactly all. exactly yeah. it's it's That's a cool. wild world <laughs> it really it really is uh well katie listen i thank you so much for spending time with us today and and um it was cool to hear a little bit about what you're up to and with lyft and your career and all that and i just uh uh we love it so what's next for you at lyft and and, and or anything else yeah well we got a lot of exciting things going on as i mentioned so we're just uh, we're continuing to you know, kind of build out our team and expand our product and our product offering. Uh, you know, we're building out our industrial design team, which is really exciting. That's as you know, my background, so I'm pretty pumped on that. And uh, we've got just so many great folks joining the team, so we're pretty thrilled. You know, it's important to us to keep it as you know, kind of one family, despite our size and. You know, we, we put a lot of time and effort into finding the right people, and I'm just really excited with the the folks that we have brought onto our group. And you know, we're looking forward to a good holiday season, and next year is going to be a, a bright one for sure. Awesome, and are, I assume you're probably hiring too, right? We are, yes, indeed. Awesome. I just and threw that out there that no one no one paid me to say that. <laughs> It's like literally, why, why wouldn't you want to work with Katie, though? Oh, thanks. Yeah. Well, so thanks again for being here. And best wishes for uh, the rest of this year and the next. All right, Dan. Thank you so very much. Have a wonderful day and a happy holiday. Yeah, you too. This has been Overtime, Dribble's official podcast. I'm Dan Cedarholm. And thanks for listening to this week's episode. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks again. Thanks again.